Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Deep Astronomy Show slash podcast. My name is Tony Darnell from deepastronomy.space, and I hope you've been enjoying the podcast I've been posting up to now. I've been doing a lot of audio renderings of the Hangouts that we've been doing on Deep Astronomy uh, YouTube channel, and we've been streaming those every Thursday night, and we've added a new one called Telescope Talk, where we're doing all kinds of new and really cool things. So I hope you guys are enjoying those. And what I'm trying to do is to intersperse those postings with some of my own personal uh, observations, I guess, in my podcast form that I don't get to do on Spaceman News or any of the other videos that I that I make and post on YouTube. I guess this is one avenue I'm trying to explore for creating astronomy content that is personal and it isn't on YouTube because YouTube has lately become a very brutal place. And so I like to state my opinions and talk about things that matter to me to people who I think want to hear it and there's a lot of people on YouTube that would be okay with some of the things that I say, but I would rather not post it in such a big forum as that. So here I am uh, trying to do this in podcast form. And today, what I want to talk about is TESS, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. And the reason I want to talk about this mission is that it's, it's, a, it's a very exciting one that was launched back in April of this year, in 2018, and it has recently started science observations. And I did a couple of Spacefan newses <laughs> on the fact that it had taken first light images. And it's also actually uh, got preliminary discoveries of two exoplanets. So if you don't know what I'm talking about there, go check out Spacefan News and you'll hear uh, what, what that's all about. But what I want to talk about in, the, in this podcast is, the, some of, is, is an answer to some of the comments that I get about TESS. Everybody seems to be complaining about the mission. Uh, they think that uh, it's not very well suited for finding a lot of exoplanets. And here's why. If you don't know much about TESS, TESS is going to look at the entire, most of the entire sky uh, over the course of two years. And it's in a really strange orbit. The orbit that it's in actually goes over the poles of the Earth uh, and past the orbit of the moon. And er in that orbit is every... Uh, it is every... Oh, about every uh, two weeks or so, I believe. And what happens is every time the uh, spacecraft gets close to Earth, it slingshots past Earth in one of its closest areas of approach, and then it goes all the way around again, and it continues to circle the Earth past the moon in that fashion. And it, as it does, it's taking a look at certain sectors of the sky. It's broken the entire sky up into about 26 sectors, 13 in the southern hemisphere and 13 in the northern hemisphere. And right now, as of today, TESS is looking at sector 3. And it's going to look at every sector of the sky for basically 27 days. That's two orbits. And people are saying, well, that's not long enough to find an exoplanet. The way TESS finds exoplanets, in case you don't know, I'm just going to give a little uh, brief 
uh, tutorial on this is it finds exoplanets using something called the transit method. And this is where a exoplanet, a planet in orbit around another star, passes between Earth and, I'm sorry, passes between TESS, the telescope, and the star that is that the planet is in orbit around. And when the planet passes between those two things, there's a the test the spacecraft will measure a tiny dip in brightness because the planet's moving in front of it and blocking out some of the light. That's called the transit method. And we can tell a lot about the size of the planet uh, by how big of the bright dip it is. And we can also tell something about its year, uh, how long it takes the planet to go around its star by looking at how long that dip occurs. And there's other things you can learn, but those are the two biggies uh, that we get from transit, the transit method of finding exoplanets. So while it's staring at this sector for two months, or 27, or actually it's one month, about 27 days, uh, the, the, it's staring at just one area using four cameras. And it's supposed to take many, many pictures during that time it's staring at that one sector. And then it's supposed to build up any light curves that it might see as potential candidates for, for uh, planets orbiting stars. The problem with this, and here's where people's complaints are, is they say that 27 days is nowhere near long enough to find any, any exoplanets. Uh, because, for example, if you were to look at a planet like Earth that takes 365 days to go around its star, then... If we are, if if tests happen to be far away and looking at our star at the wrong time over 27 days, it wouldn't see any dip in brightness because it takes the Earth 365 days to go around our star. So to see that dip in its completeness, you would need to be staring at it for a full year. Well, TESS is only looking for 27 days, so how can you expect to find many exoplanets there? And and the reason I think this is unfair to TESS is that the mission design for TESS was done like this on purpose for the reason that uh, it was only designed to find candidate worlds. In other words, here is a potential dip in brightness. It's also been optimized to look for something called super-Earths. These are planets that are rocky and are about uh, anywhere from uh, one and a half to two and a half times the Earth's size and about up to 15 times I'm sorry, up to 15 times the diameter of the Earth, but up to two and a half times its mass. And these are called super-Earths, or bigger than Earth, and they're rocky. Well, so TESS has been optimized to look for this. But people say, well, this isn't long enough. 27 days is nowhere near long enough to build up a decent light curve and to find out if there's a planet there or not. And yes, it is. You can get a candidate if you happen, admittedly, a lot has to happen. You have to look in the right place at the right time, and... Uh, you have to be lucky, but it is also looking at uh, a large area of sky during that 27 days, and it's getting a lot of stars, roughly tens of thousands of stars every in every sector. So I think people are being unfair to test because, first of all, it was designed to see, just get candidates. This means that, oh, here's a possible exoplanet. Now I'm going to give this to somebody else to go and see and confirm it and look at it for a longer period of time to see if there really is a planet there in orbit, and they could give that to a ground-based observatory or, or even other, other space telescopes. But it was only designed to find planets. So that's one thing I want to say in Tess's favor. It was never designed to do more than that. Second of all, what people forget is that Tess only costs $200 million, plus another $87 million for the launch. So $287 million. That's what Tess costs. 
And I'm sorry, folks, but in science, you get what you pay for. If you want a cheap mission of about $300 million, then you get something like TESS. And I think they've done the best they could with the money that they had. This was a good science uh, use case. It helps find a lot of planets that are roughly or slightly bigger than the Earth over the course of... And and it's also (laughs) going to be biased to finding planets that are relatively close to their stars. So far, the two exoplanets that TESS has found have been, they've had orbits of like one of them had an orbit of 11 hours, the other one was just like six days or something like that. So that's its year, that's how long it takes for the planet to go around its star. So these are very, very fast orbiting planets and of course TESS could find those easy because they're moving quickly. A A planet like the Earth would be much harder for TESS to find. So I don't think it's fair to uh, criticize tests based on the fact that, first of all, it only it only costs three hundred million dollars to put up there, and while it's, it's and then it's going to look at that sector for twenty seven days, go to another sector, and as of today, it's on sector three, and it's going to go all the way th- and it's in the southern hemisphere, and then it's going to go all the way to sector thirteen in the southern hemisphere, then rotate and look at thirteen more sectors in the northern hemisphere, and that and that'll take two years to do that. So in two years, it'll have looked at the most of the sky uh, in 27-day chunks. But, and here's another thing that people forget about TESS, is that after those two years, it's going to continue to look. It's going to go back and do it again. And it's going to be able to look for much, much longer periods of time. If you compare this to another mission like um Kepler, Kepler only caught Kepler cost six hundred and forty million dollars, almost twice as much, or a little over twice as much as Tess did. It was designed to last for five years, and all it did was stare at one one section of the sky in the constellation Cygnus at one hundred and sixty thousand stars for five years. Now it was able to build up quite a catalog of candidate planets, about four thousand of them actually, and it was wildly successful. But guess what? Tess is still, I mean, Kepler is still up there taking data. In fact, just this week, NASA announced that it's going to be uh, putting Kepler in safe mode because it's almost out of fuel. So let's see, it was launched in 2009. (laughs) Here it is, 2018. So almost 10 full years of Kepler data for a cost of $640 million. That's a pretty good return on investment. And a lot of NASA space missions have been like this, where they've way exceeded their missions. So, before you get on Tess's case, remember, it only costs $300 million. That includes the launch to get it up there. It's going to look at the entire sky uh, over the course of those two years. And yes, it won't see everything that's out there, but it will see a lot of things. And it will see the candidate planets that it does find, it's going to send to uh, the observatories on the ground where they could follow up and look at more, uh, at, at get more observations and get more of a complete light curve uh, than what Tess was able to get. And then after its mission, we cannot, you can be sure Tess is going to still be up there taking data and it complete and it can get more complete light curves over the course of time. So don't be hating on Tess, folks. It's it's doing a great job and it's going to be doing a great job in the years to come. It's doing exactly what it was designed to do. And if you have a problem with the 27-day window, you can thank the fact that it only costs $300 million to make. This is what you get for $300 million. Now, by comparison, 
people are complaining about the cost overruns of JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, which was which is the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope, it is going to come in at a whopping $8.5 billion, with a B, dollars. Now, what the kind of science we're going to get from that, it could be argued maybe isn't worth $8.5 billion, but to But for what JWST was supposed to cost, which was about half that, we were going to get a lot more science out of it. It was going to be up there for five years nominally uh, and probably with a goal of getting a 10-year mission out of it. And the JWST was considered one of these programs of NASA where they're called great observatories. They're very large projects, and Hubble was one. The Chandra Space Telescope, X-ray Telescope is another, and Spitzer was another one. So these are all billion-dollar class space telescopes. But the kind of science we're going to get out of JWST, we're going to get, not only are we going to get light curves from other planets passing in front of their stars, but we're going to be able to measure the spectrum of the light that comes through that star passing through any atmosphere that might be on an exoplanet. And we'll be able to see what's in that atmosphere. So JWST is going to measure not only that there's an exoplanet there, but if it has an atmosphere, it'll be able to tell that it does, and it'll be able to tell us what's in that atmosphere. And from that information, we might be able to find out if the conditions are favorable for life. That's a pretty good return uh, on, on the science investment. Now, and in addition to exoplanet and life in the universe studies, James Webb Space Telescope will also look directly at the very first stars to ever shine in the heavens, the very first stars ever created in the universe, the James Webb Space Telescope will see. It'll also see the very first galaxies that ever formed in the early universe. So we will learn so much from JWST. I admit and I capitulate that it's costing too much. I think we paid too much for JWST. Uh, and I blame Northrop Grumman for that. And I blame the contracting uh system that NASA uses to pay their contractors. It was in something called a cost plus contract, which means that Northrop Grumman doesn't have to pay for any late schedules or any cost overruns in the mission that comes out of the taxpayer's pocket. I think that's wrong. Uh, but I do think that coming in at eight and a half billion dollars, it's still worth doing. It's certainly don't, you don't want, I don't want to throw it away at this point after spending all this kind of money. And yes, it has, it has come to cost about the same as an aircraft carrier would cost. And many would argue that that's not the, that's not the best use of our tax dollars. But I would rather have James Webb Space Telescope up there taking data, looking at the first stars and galaxies in the universe, at exoplanet atmospheres and all these other things, than I would really care about having an uh, aircraft carrier. Now, on a related note, I, I did a Space Fan News on this cost overrun where I actually made a comment where I said I'd rather have the aircraft carrier. I'm sorry, I'd rather have James, James Webb Space Telescope than an aircraft carrier. And I get comments like this all the time on YouTube. Let me read one to you. It says, I'd rather sleep good at night knowing our freedom is preserved for at least another 60 to 100 years rather than look at detailed images of the Orion Nebula. People have their priorities all jacked up in this country anymore. That was a comment on YouTube, and of course I responded. I said, sigh, 
Uh, yeah, that's the trade-off. That's just what I said. Please give me pretty pictures of Orion and take away my friend at my freedom. And uh, that was my response to that comment. And um, okay, so <laughs> I, I I I get there's a lot of frustration out there with how much things are costing, but it's you can't. It, it just seems like in this day and age, um, when you want to make a scientific uh, anything that costs a lot of money, uh, and it comes it comes to loggerheads against money we spend in in military uh, protection. Um, I think people get really defensive about the military part of it. They'd rather be safe and free, and and they think that this is all going to be taking taking away from their freedom, which is not what at all anybody any of us wants who sees uh, who wants JWST to succeed. So anyway, um, I just I don't know. I just wanted to talk about that a little bit. the The test mission is doing well. It's nominal. It's everything's fine. It's in its uh, third sector of observations now and uh, retrieving data all the time. So um, I, I just wanted to clarify a few things about why TESS is doing the, way, doing the things the way it does. And I think we just need to stop hating on it so much. Remember, it's going to be up there for a very long time, and it only cost half of what we paid for the Kepler Space Telescope. And Kepler, by looking at one area of the sky, gave us thousands of exoplanets. So... I think it's totally worth it. Okay, while we're on the subject of exoplanets and Kepler and TESS and all these really cool, exciting uh, missions that are up there, let me read you the latest on what's going on with Kepler, the Kepler Space Telescope. Uh, NASA's Kepler team has received data showing that the spacecraft's ability to point precisely has degraded. In order to preserve high-value science data collected during its latest observation campaign, the Kepler team has placed the spacecraft in a stable, no-fuel-use sleep mode. During Kepler's allotted deep space network time, this is the this is the basically the internet of space telescopes, so the deep space network. This is how they transfer data back and forth. Um, which was scheduled to begin October 10th, the Kepler team will wake up the spacecraft and direct it to point to the large antenna that it has on its spacecraft back to Earth and transmit the science data home. Due to the uncertainties about the remaining, about the remaining fuel available, uh, there is no guarantee that NASA will be able to download the science data. If it's successful, however, the Kepler team will attempt to start the next observing campaign with the remaining fuel. Kepler's latest observing campaign, which was, kept, which was Campaign 19, started on August 29th after the spacecraft's configuration had been modified in order to adapt to a change in thruster performance. Over the following 27 days, Kepler observed more than 30,000 stars and galaxies in the constellation of Aquarius. The stars included dozens of known and suspected exoplanet systems, including the well-known TRAPPIST-1 system with its seven Earth-sized worlds. Okay, so 
Kepler's not doing well. But again, it's running four years past its stated uh, mission goal time. And now we've been running literally on borrowed time uh, all this all this since basically 2014. And so as of now, Kepler is in bad shape. It's running on fumes. They don't have a gas gauge on board the spacecraft, so they can't tell exactly how much fuel it does have. But um, they're going to keep using it until it is absolutely bone dry. What has to happen is they have to actually use fuel to turn the spacecraft. The spacecraft is on the same orbit of, as the Earth is around the sun, but, they, and it's, but it's leading ahead uh, of us as we go around the sun. And it has to turn uh, the entire spacecraft to face Earth and then uh, uh, transmit its data back, and then it turns back into its uh, pointing modes where it is observing the, uh, the stars that are in the equatorial range of the solar system. And I have to tell you, if you don't know what they did with Kepler, they've renamed it K2. But back after Kepler completed its main mission of looking at the constellation of Cygnus the Swan at the 160,000 stars there, one of the reaction wheels, or two of the reaction wheels, failed. That These are these big wheels that turn, that keep the spacecraft stable, and it allows it to point and stay very precisely pointed in one area of the sky. Well, they need at least three of those to be able to do a good job. So they had four, one was extra, two of them failed, which meant they had one short, they were one short of what they needed to do accurate pointing. Well, they thought about it for a while. They thought the mission was over. Oh, well, we've got, at least we got our main mission in and we got all the main uh, 160,000 stars that we wanted to study, studied over five years. And then somebody had this really great idea. They said, wait a minute, we could use the pressure, the radiation pressure from the sun to push against the spacecraft and allow it and give it stability along that one axis of the where one of the prior momentum wheels had failed. And then we could use the other two wheels to keep it steady in the other uh, directions. And so... But, he said, that's going to mean that because of the orbit of Kepler, as it goes around the sun, it's only going to be able to look at stars that are, that are in the plane of the ecliptic. And that's the plane where of, of where the sun and the planets uh, all follow rough, roughly a plane of about uh, 23 degrees or so. And most of the planets follow in that plane. That's the plane of the ecliptic. And the Earth, as it goes around the sun makes a plane, a circle, um, and that's called the ecliptic, and it'll only be able, to, Kepler is only going to be able to look along the ecliptic away from the sun as it goes around. But you know what? A lot of good science could be done as a result of that. They were able to see things that Kepler ordinarily would not see, and they would also be able to use it for things that aren't necessarily related to exoplanet things. So they've done a lot of good science with it, uh, even after the momentum wheels had failed. So that's another example of NASA getting as much money worth, money's worth as possible out of our tax dollars. And so, I don't know, I just I feel confident not only about what TESS can do, but also about the upcoming James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, and we're, if you haven't been tuning into the Hangouts uh, lately, we've been doing a series uh, on the new, the next generation of space telescopes that are being considered after the W first mission, and I'm posting these as audio, so hopefully you'll you'll listen to them. I've already done one on uh, on 
the uh, some of the concepts that are already being considered uh, out there in the past few um, in the past few podcasts. We've got the Lynx uh, X-ray Observatory. There was the uh, I'm doing one tomorrow on the HABAX, the Habitable Exoplanet mission. These are all missions that are being considered for the next generation of space telescopes to be launched sometime in 2020, late 2020s, early 2030s. So learn about those uh, as well. And um, uh, you know, let me know what you think by listening to the podcast. Okay, I'm going to stop here, folks. Um, I hope you guys like this. Let me know. I, I know podcasting is weird. You can only listen to what I, uh, what I can do uh, without much feedback. So... If you happen to be listening to this on, on Anchor FM, then you can send me audio responses, and I'll include them in future podcasts. Otherwise, um, feel free to comment on, uh, I have a Discord server, so please get on the Discord chat. Uh, the link to that is in the description box of this uh, podcast. And, and ask me questions, and let me know what you think of these podcasts and what you'd like to see content on right now it's all about basically whatever i feel like making and if i don't feel like getting all dressed up for a video then i just record a podcast so anyway let me know what you think folks all right well that's it for this podcast thank you for listening to the deep astronomy show with tony darnell uh, from deepastronomy.space thank you all so much for listening and as always keep looking up (music) 